This morning is our final session of DIG, and we forgot to dismiss our preschoolers. I'm not sure if they headed out. They knew the routine, so they might have gone ahead. Um, but if we have any preschoolers with us, we do have class this morning, so you are welcome to head back that way. Um, our elementary kids are with us this morning. Every first Sunday is designated as a family Sunday where we keep our elementary kids with us. So they are with us this morning, and here for our final session of DIG, we're going to invite the rest of you to join us this morning to hear our Bible story and our last session together. And we've heard a lot about Peter this weekend. I mentioned in our recap his name multiple times. But this morning, we're going to shift our attention to another follower of Jesus whose name also starts with a P. So it's not Peter, but it's Paul. We're going to be in the book of Acts this morning. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Acts 17. You may or may not know that there is a cart of Bibles in the back, right by the doors in the back there. So if you don't have a physical Bible with you and you would like to use one, you can just get up and walk back there and grab one. And kids, I don't know if you know, there are kids' Bibles back there too for you to use. So if you don't have a Bible with you this morning and you want to walk back, there are some of these adventure Bibles back there. You can just go back and grab one and bring it up to your seat and then have somebody help you turn to Acts 17 so that you can follow along with us in the scriptures this morning. So while you are finding Acts 17, we're going to unpack a little bit of the background of Paul together. Paul had never met Jesus in human form like Peter had, but Paul was a Jew like Peter, worshiping and following the one true God. And before he became known as Paul, his name was Saul, and he was devout. That means that he followed the very letter of the law, God's word to a T, so much so that when the news of Jesus was spreading and the word that Jesus had been resurrected, the early church was growing, Saul didn't believe right off that Jesus was the Son of God. And in fact, Saul was leading the way with putting a stop to it. We're first introduced to Saul in Acts 7 when he approved of the stoning of Stephen, who was preaching the word of God and following Jesus. We then read more in Acts of how Saul traveled around persecuting the early believers because Saul thought that what he was doing was the right thing. He thought he was putting a stop to those that he thought were heretics, telling what he thought, again, were falsehoods about God, about Jesus, this son of God, whom had been raised from the dead. But then Saul encountered Jesus for himself. He encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, and at that point in his life, he was completely transformed. His life really took a 180 turn, and he was no longer Saul, the hunter of Christians, but he became Paul, the lover of Jesus, who went on to share the good news all across the Mediterranean world. So all throughout the book of Acts, we read about Paul going out beyond Jerusalem, to share the good news, not only with Jews in other cities, but also to the Gentiles. Because God was expanding their vision of who was to be included 
as followers of Jesus, they discovered that the gospel message was for everyone. All were invited to follow Jesus. And Jesus had set the stage for this before he returned to heaven. We read Jesus' words in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Kids, we saw that on our video about Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came. And Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He said, you will be my witnesses. And Paul was a witness, even when things got really hard for Paul. Paul's journeys put him in some pretty dicey situations. At times, the book of Acts seems to read more like an adventure story as we read about Paul encountering mobs, being beaten and then thrown in prison multiple times, being miraculously released from prison one time through a divine earthquake. He survived a venomous snake bite, multiple shipwrecks, and then ultimately living as a prisoner when he finally arrived in Rome carrying forward the gospel message of Jesus Christ, serving as a witness. Even in these hardships, Paul lived a life of faithful obedience to Jesus Christ. He had been radically changed by Christ, and he lived his life as a witness to that transformation, not only sharing the truth about who Jesus was, but also living his life in a way that reflected that radical change, calling others to think about, well, what does the life, death, and resurrection of Christ mean for us now? How are we to go on living in a new and different way in light of the resurrection? See, God had called Paul to carry forward the gospel to the ends of the earth, to Rome itself, which was the center of the empire at that time. So our passage here in Acts 17 picks up a bit before Paul's last imprisonment and then his journey to Rome. It takes us to Athens, which was another center of the ancient world. As we travel with Paul throughout Acts, Paul progressively traveled further and further from Jerusalem, which was like the epicenter of the Jewish faith, and he moved more fully into the world of the Gentiles. And we see Paul always following and leading the direction of the Holy Spirit, who sometimes took him to unexpected places. So here in Acts 17, Paul didn't plan to go to Athens. He'd actually previously been in Thessalonica, where he had to leave secretly because of violent crowds. But then those same crowds followed him to his next destination of Berea, where he had again had to leave. So believers secretly took him quite a ways away to Athens to safety, where he was waiting for his friends, his co-ministers, Silas and Timothy, to come and join him. So this morning, we're going to find out what he discovered in Athens, where he, here he was unexpectedly waiting for his friends. So let's find out in Acts 17, starting with verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. 
And we're gonna go ahead and pause there, right at the front end. And let's think about this. So here is Paul. He's arriving unexpectedly, and he's waiting in what seems to be the safety of Athens. And yet this first sentence doesn't really paint a picture of safety for Paul, right? As a follower of Jesus, he's again coming to a place that hasn't previously heard the gospel message. Some commentators describe this scene in Athens as a forest of idols. The message paraphrase even describes it as being a junkyard of idols. See, pagan worship was the essence, really, of Athenian culture. How many of us today are familiar with the names and the stories of the Greek gods and goddesses, right? Even today, Greek philosophy, Greek thought is elevated, and really our Western thought, our systems, even our government are based upon these Greek ideas. It's been influential to us. Now, at the time that Paul was in Athens, the city was still known as a religious, a scholastic, a political, and a cultural hub, although not to the extent that it had in earlier years. And there was a god or a goddess for everything. It was a junkyard of idols. Here's a picture from our Dig Bible story. Maybe this helps us picture how Paul might have been feeling as he arrived in Athens at that time. If we look back at verse 16, it reads, he was greatly distressed. He looks a little distressed there in that picture, I think. But we could also read that as angered or distraught, provoked, troubled, frustrated, maybe even infuriated. Have you ever had that deep sense of unrest, like in your gut, that something is just off, something is not right? So here was Paul, a faithful Jew who had been transformed by Jesus, but here he's surrounded by statues of gods and goddesses and the people who worshipped them. And he's now looking at this pagan Gentile world with new glasses on because he has been transformed by the love of Christ. He was saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. So I have to imagine that he had compassion for the people as he saw their belief in these false gods. Things weren't right in Athens and he was distraught. But in typical Paul fashion, Paul didn't stay quiet. He didn't just stay put and rest until his friends arrived because he had been called by God to be a witness of Jesus Christ. So even though he wasn't expecting to be here in Athens, he went ahead and he publicly shared the good news, starting in the synagogue as he typically did. So let's pick up here in verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, 
may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who live there spend their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Let's go ahead and pause there another minute just to unpack that section there. So here we see Paul branching out from the Jewish synagogue, right? And it doesn't take him long here in Athens to encounter these Greek philosophers, these people who thought they had life figured out. They like to sit around and talk and contemplate life, talk about religion and beliefs and all of these things. So when they hear Paul, did you catch the word that they called him? They called him a babbler. And the Greek word for babbler here is kind of like a bird picking up scraps and just dropping them, right? Can you picture that kind of bird? He's not finding anything valuable to eat, right? Have you ever spent time with somebody that you might think of as a babbler? That's probably not kind to say, right? But somebody who maybe just kind of talks and talks and it, they seem to know what they're talking about, but maybe they don't really, they don't make sense, or they just chatter about things that are meaningless. That's, that's what these people were thinking about Paul as he was talking about Jesus here. These listeners of Paul weren't really sure that there was any value in what Paul was saying. And because of their pagan beliefs, they had a polytheistic system here. That means they worshiped many gods. They had no framework for just one god. There were many gods, and that's just how things were. They didn't have a framework for thinking about Jesus here. So they even seem to think that Paul is talking about multiple gods. Some commentators suggest that the people may have thought the people were thinking Jesus is a god, and then the resurrection is his corresponding goddess. Like, that's how off their whole framework was here. It took them away from the truth of who Jesus was and what Paul was trying to communicate here. And yet, we see them wanting to know more, right? Verse 20 reads, You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. So within this framework here, their pagan framework, they may have been thinking, well, here's Paul. He's talking about some foreign gods. We've never heard of them. So one, maybe we need to believe in these gods too. So we need to hear Paul tell us more about them. Or two, well, maybe we need to protect ourselves from these foreign gods. So maybe we need to listen to Paul so then we can get rid of Paul. We're not really sure. So as the passage continues here, they take Paul to the Areopagus to hear more. The Areopagus is also known as Mars Hill to share more about what they're calling strange ideas here. And this is what Paul says to the people. So we're picking up in verse 22 here. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this description to an unknown God. So you were ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. 
Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps, perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Of course, we know who he's talking about, Jesus. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of of others. So there's a lot here, right? That's a long speech. There's a lot we could unpack here from Paul's speech. We could break it all apart. We could look at his rhetoric and the way that he's arguing here or trying to persuade the people, the way that he's pointing to Jesus and the resurrection, even though he never says the name Jesus in that passage. Did you notice that? We could talk more about how he's grounding his argument in creation creating a common kind of framework with these pagan people here. And we could even pull out some evangelistic strategies, right? So here's Paul preaching in a really unique context. So how can we preach like that or teach like that in our context, right? But for today, it's Dig Sunday, right? So I want to connect this passage to our final bottom line. So we're going to pull it up on the screen. Kids, you have your new button in your boxes too, so hopefully you pull that out. But our last bottom line here is go where Jesus leads. So that is going to be our focus here with this passage. And it connects to this idea of moving that we've been focusing on all weekend long. And throughout Acts, we see Paul going where Jesus leads him. After Paul encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, he could have sat on the sidelines. You know, he really could have just gone home. As a changed man, he could have remained safe. He could have stayed in Jerusalem, or maybe he could have gone back to Damascus. He could have built a church there. He could have done some really great things, right? But God had called him to be a witness beyond where he was comfortable, and God had called him to go, not to stay put, and he continued to go even when it was really hard. Now, we live in a really different time and place from Paul, right? And yet we serve the same God who's moving in our world today, inviting us to participate in his redemptive mission. So as we look at the words and the actions of Paul here in Acts, I think that we can glean some ways that we can also live as witnesses 
of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, a lot of times as we think about the word witness, we think about confronting someone with their faith, maybe a stranger, like right on the street and coming up to them with a prepackaged kind of way about telling them about salvation, right? Does that picture come into your mind? And I think sometimes there's a time and place for that. But when we look to scripture, we see these disciples and these early followers of Jesus living as witnesses, right? The ways that they lived and the ways that they spoke, telling about the things that they had seen and heard. And really, that's what a witness is, talking about your own experiences, your own observations, your own encounters. Now, some of the disciples had been eyewitnesses to Jesus. They had physically followed Jesus. And of course, Paul had his own personal experience with Jesus on the road to Damascus. But each of us has our own personal witness account, right? The ways that we have experienced Jesus, what we know, what we've seen, and what we have experienced. So as a witness, Paul sometimes told his own story of the way that he had experienced Jesus on that road to Damascus, but he doesn't do that here in Athens, right? He does tell the truth of who he knows God to be. He describes God as being creator and sustainer and provider. And he tells it in a way that's relatable to these listeners here in Athens. Remember, other than the Jews and the God-fearers that he was encountering in the synagogues, these people are pagans. They were educated, but they were looking to false gods for their salvation. They didn't have a framework for imagining one true God. So Paul had to adjust, right? And here we see Paul speaking as an adaptive witness. He adapted his message. He knew his audience. He knew he wasn't in Jerusalem. He wasn't in the synagogues. He knew he wasn't teaching the Jews and the God-fearers. He was in Athens. Here he was in the Areopagus, and he was speaking to educated philosophers. But of course, if we go back, remember when he arrived in Athens, he'd also seen the idols. Remember the forest, the junkyard of idols that he described. And he saw the religious pursuit of the people. They were serious about religion, right? But they were faithfully worshiping the wrong things. They had a God for everything, and as Paul points out in verse 23, there's even an altar to an unknown God, right? So really, they had all their bases covered. So Paul knew who he was talking to, and rather than ridiculing them or pointing out how foolish they are for believing all of these false things, he affirms them for their religious pursuit and their desire to know God. So I think here there's like a spirit of hospitality that Paul is showing here. He communicates in a way that they're going to understand because he wants their hearts to hear and to understand the truth of the gospel message. And so here in adapting his message, Paul even quotes directly from Greek literature in verse 28. Did you catch that? For in him we live and move and have our being. 
that has its roots in Greek writing. So Paul is helping the people here understand this creator God is the one who gives us life and breath and meaning. And this God isn't distant, but he's near, as near as our very breath, our very being. And this God reaches for us instead of waiting for us to reach for him. So Paul was an adaptive witness, and he connected with the people in a way that they might actually hear and be able to receive the message. So really, it wasn't Paul who was the babbler. Maybe they were the ones who were the babblers all along with their false and proud beliefs, following these gods who may or may not exist, who may or may not be interested in them. They weren't sure, but they followed them anyway. And yet God loved these idol worshipers, and he wanted them to be near. And I think God still loves idol worshipers, even if we don't see idols as statues like they were in Athens. I think in many ways, maybe we still live in a junkyard of idols. I think we all know people who worship things other than God, who prioritize things before God, maybe ourselves through self-centeredness, or maybe it's sports teams or celebrities or money or power or politics. That list could go on and on and on. Maybe we're even sometimes the idol worshipers. But we have a God who desires to be near and to be first. And God wanted to know these idol worshipers in Athens and then to be known in return. He desires to know us. He didn't want these people to stay idol worshipers, and the same is true for us. So Paul adapted his message for the people. So as we think about the places that we go, the people we encounter, the places we live, how could we be adaptive witnesses? Who are the people that we encounter who have no framework of a God who loves them and a God who desires to draw near to them? How could the ways that we live and the words that we speak point people to Jesus? It's important for us to know and understand the frameworks of the people around us so that we can connect with them and connect them to Jesus. And I think we also see Paul here serving as a selfless witness. Paul recognized the risks that came with preaching Jesus, whether it was to the Jews, who were not always kind to him, or the Gentiles, who also did not always listen. Throughout Acts, we see Paul suffering for the sake of the gospel. Things were not easy for him. Things didn't always go well. His listeners were not always responsive, and yet he always gave the glory to God. He wasn't in it for himself. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And the same is true here in Acts 17. Paul isn't out to impress or to bring attention to himself or just to give a grand speech with some polished philosophy. Rather, he's preaching Christ crucified, Christ resurrected. 
And Paul is serving as a selfless witness. And I have to wonder if we follow that same pursuit or do we want the attention for ourselves when we step out maybe and share our faith, maybe trying to sound articulate or educated, like trying to give the best Christian speech that we can give and we take the credit? Or do we take a posture of selflessness like Paul, like Jesus, knowing that our listeners might not even want to hear us, that they might think we're strange or maybe think we're babblers, and yet faithfully going where God wants us to go and speaking to whoever he puts in our path. That's the posture that Paul is taking. And then finally, we see Paul living his life as a trusting witness. Paul trusted God. He went where the Spirit led him. Here he was unexpectedly in Athens. Later he went on to Rome, and he eventually died for the sake of Christ. He trusted the prompting and the leading of the Spirit, knowing that God was with him no matter the circumstances. And the same can be true for us. I think God is calling us to be trusting witnesses who are in tune with the leading of the Spirit, who are willing to go into the hard spaces to share the good news of Jesus. And for Paul, Athens was one of those hard spaces. And we don't really even know the result of his time there, other than scripture tells us there were some who believed. But Paul trusted God with the results. So as I was preparing this message and thinking about the ways that Paul served as a witness, it really stood out to me that throughout Acts, Paul always follows the leading of the Spirit, right? We see this divine leading all throughout Acts, not only from Paul, but from the other believers as well. There are times when God directed Paul in completely different ways than what he was expecting or his agenda, where he wanted to go. And sometimes he ended up in random places like Athens. But maybe Athens wasn't so random after all. The Spirit led him, and he cooperated no matter the outcome. So as I was thinking about that, I was reminded of the way that water currents move. The movement of water is kind of interesting to me, and where I grew up in western Pennsylvania, a favorite summer pastime is river tubing. Have any of you ever intertubed down a river before? It's great fun. For those of you who don't know, you basically are just sitting on a big inner tube and floating down the river. So it's super relaxing and it's a fun, relaxing time. But the thing about river tubing is that you don't have paddles like you would in a canoe or a kayak. So you have to kind of go with the flow of the river wherever that current is leading you. You continuously go with the flow, sometimes slow, sometimes a little faster, and you can struggle against that current, but it's really best to kind of follow the direction of the river so that you don't tip over, you don't get stuck off course or washed up on the shore. One online source described currents this way. The energy of flowing river water comes from the force of gravity, which pulls the water downward. The steeper the slope of a river, the faster the river moves and the more energy it has. The movement of water in a river is called a current. The current is usually strongest near the river's source. So did you catch that last part? The current is usually strongest near the river's source. 
So if we think about Paul's source, our source, who of course is God, wouldn't we want to be as close as possible to him? Wouldn't we want to live and move and have our being fully in him, trusting in his leading and guiding and directing as the Spirit helps us, completely in tune with the Spirit like a current? So kids, today in your boxes, you have a compass. Did you guys find the compass in your box today? Well, that connects to this part of the message, right? Because we can follow the guidance of the compass, or we can choose to go our own direction. And the same is true when we follow Jesus. We can choose to go where Jesus leads, or we can choose where we want to go. And I can certainly think of times in my own life when I have cooperated with God's leading. And he's taken me places where maybe I didn't plan to go, where we're talking to people that maybe I didn't expect to talk to, but I was participating in God's work. But then I can also think of times when I've stayed at home or I chose not to participate. Times when maybe I felt a little nudge, a prompting from the spirit to do something or say something, but I chose not to cooperate. See, we can choose to follow the spirit's leading. We can be swept into God's redeeming and restoring of all things, or we can struggle against it. We can go the wrong way if we want to, or we can sit on the shore on the sidelines. We can choose not to participate. God doesn't force us to. Sometimes it's easier to sit on the sidelines, right? To be in our comfortable houses, our comfortable couches, maybe in our comfortable church even, not having to talk to people who have a different framework from what we have. But as we see with Paul, life in God's current isn't always easy, but it is always worth it for the sake of the world. So as we close this morning, where might God's current be leading you, God's spirit? Where is God inviting you to participate in his redeeming mission? So as you think about this, are you seeing yourself on the shore? Maybe you're dipping your toes. Or maybe you're in a place where you're really struggling against the current. Or maybe you're in the river and you're completely cooperating with God's leading, following wherever the spirit leads. So as we close this morning, we're going to share Holy Communion together. So in a moment, Pastor Dustin is going to come forward um, to lead us. But as we share in the communion elements this morning, I invite you to be reminded in a tangible kind of way that God is with you, God is with us, desiring to lead us and to guide us wherever we go as Jesus leads.